0: I never got any money from you. UFO
1: you might just as well stand for an
0: unprecedented financial opportunity. Be normal. This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. This is The Zine Scene, The Ufologist. It's been a while since we've done one of our Zine Scene episodes. I suppose you could count our episode last fall about strange humanoid creatures and the... Pacific Rim and some Japanese contactees, since those stories all came from newsletters or magazines of some type. But I think our exploration of a particular magazine series and its contents and sort of point of view, I think the last time we did that was looking at the Grand Rapids Flying Saucer Group sometime last spring, last summer, something like that. So – we're jumping back into that with a look at four issues, because that's all I could get my hands on from the Archives for the Unexplained. A newsletter called The Ufologist, which was published and largely written by Alan H. Greenfield back in 1970 and 1971. This is an interesting one with some fun ideas that I think are very much in line with what we do here on The Saucer Life. So, Let's jump in. So, Alan Greenfield, a lot of you have heard of Alan Greenfield. Some of you have probably heard him speak or read his books. You might have seen him on um, the, the Hellier video series, which we're big fans of here at Chizo Media. And he's an interesting character. I could have done an episode about his books, The Secret Cipher of the Ufonauts, or his book, Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, Sinister, some kind of rituals of the men in black. I can never quite remember the title of it, and the book's all the way across the room, so I'm not going to look. But instead of looking at those later works, I'm going to look at these issues of the para-ufologist he did back in the early 1970s. And the reason I'm going to do that is because, like I said, I think these are very much in line with how we look at ufology here on the show, the sorts of topics that I personally am interested in, the sort of point of view that I actually share. And um, in this episode of or this zine scene installment and other ones that might happen throughout 2022, I'm going to try to keep to a theme, unless I forget about it, and that is looking at this period of 1969, 1970, 1971. It's a very interesting sort of turning point in ufology for some reasons we're going to look at here in this magazine. I think first, I'll tell you a little bit about Alan Greenfield from the biography that is at his website as of right now, T. Alan Greenfield dot com uh, there's a t at the beginning and it's Alan, allen a l l e n greenfield the t by the way stands for the greek letter tau and according to the website is quote a customary title given to an esoteric prelate in the doinel lineage upon their consecration end quote if you know what that means then you know what that means. I'm not entirely sure what that means. I assume it has to do with magic. But Greenfield is a native of Georgia and uh, has lived in a number of places. And is uh, he is a longtime student. His biography says of esoteric spirituality and Gnosticism, which he began studying in 1960. He is a past elected member of the British Society for Cyclical Research. He was a member of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, or Nightcap, all the way back in 1960 he's twice been named ufologist of the year by the national ufo conference in both 1972 and 1992 and he is an associate of borderland science research an association we have talked about in the past and which we will talk about again in the future According to his biography, Greenfield has conducted on-site UFO abduction investigations in Brookville, Florida, Pascagoula, Mississippi, and Brown Mountain, North Carolina. And he considers the UFO phenomenon to be, quote, a signal from the collective unconscious that the neglect of magical spirituality by society as a whole is the cause of emotional plague and social disaster end quote. And that is certainly as good an explanation for the UFO phenomenon as I've ever heard. I mean, it makes as much sense to me as anything else. And he provides a pretty good summation of himself in this way. <clears throat> he is, however, not a strange creature from time nor space, a UFO silencer, a pagan writer, and the luminoid, nor for that matter, a theosophist. How close to the truth he is depends on who you talk to. I like that, and um, I, I should say I've I've met uh, Alan Greenfield briefly at the Strange Realities Conference in Nashville last fall. Interesting guy, and he was kind enough to answer some of the questions that I submitted during the Q&A on the, I think, the Saturday night session. Um, it's probably best if I not mention which questions those were. He also back in the 1960s and 1970s, and I believe into the 1980s, probably beyond, published so many magazines and newsletters. And if you go to the Archives for the Unexplained uh, Directory and Archive of Scanned UFO Newsletters from decades past, they do have a directory for United States, but they don't have a specific directory for Alan Greenfield's newsletters, which they really should. Luckily, after the name of the newsletter, they do put Greenfield if it is an Alan Greenfield newsletter. So that's kind of, uh, kind of good. I think there's there might be at least a dozen different newsletters or magazines that he was involved in creating over the years. But for our purposes today, we're going to look at, as I said, the Para Ufologist, of which there were four issues available, which were published from late 1970 into 1971. Like I said, it's in tune with the attitude we prefer in our ufology here at the saucer life. And the first issue from November of 1970 begins with an editorial titled Decline and Fall. Tralla Two topics you might see bouncing around these days in the UFO field, if you follow these things that closely, are A, the alternate reality bit, Keel's Trojan horse, parallel worlds, or whatever you want to call it, some might call it, well, the word I have in mind has four letters, and B, the current sorry state of affairs in the UFO field. I think the alternate reality bit that he says might require some additional explanation. A few years before, Greenfield had published the first issue of another newsletter called the Alternate Horizons Newsletter. In the first issue of that, he outlined some theories of a non-extraterrestrial explanation for the UFO phenomenon. 1. The UFO phenomenon and other border phenomena seem to be, at least in some cases, linked. 2. Many of the accounts of contact or near-contact seem to be true to the extent that they are reasonably accurate, subjective accounts of actual experiences of one kind or another. But there are amazing but relevant indications that these experiences, while accurate so far as the witness is concerned and while having objective external stimuli, are viewed within the context of the observer's own background experience. Also, there is the distinct possibility that some amount of willful deception may be involved. 3. The concept of they walk among us is not only not far-fetched, but is probably quite true. This may serve to explain a number of baffling cases that have showed up over the years. 4. We seem to be dealing with groups of entities with more than one purpose. In other words, some saucers may well be hostile, some unconcerned, some friendly in one sense or another. Now, as for topic B, the sorry state of affairs of the UFO field, this is the era of the aftermath of the Condon Report, which basically, and I know I am simplifying greatly, concluded that the UFO phenomenon was overwhelmingly composed of identifiable things. As a result, the Air Force had an excuse to shut down Project Blue Book, and the big breakthrough that organizations like NICAP longed for and expected from an officially authorized scientific examination of the issue never happened. NICAP would go into decline, and within about a decade and a half, both it and its more enjoyable cousin APRO would be defunct. Apart from new startup MUFON, the era of big organized UFO research organizations was in decline. Now, This was troubling to some UFO types, but not everyone. As Greenfield says here, I don't know that there's any law that says the field has to go on. It might just fall apart altogether, the world moving on to other things. Greenfield notes that people in the ufology world might have a need for scapegoats. So some of them are going to talk about it being a bad time for ufology because of the Condon Report or because of Project Blue Book shutting down or because man has landed on the moon and found no flying saucers. So obviously flying saucers don't exist. He acknowledges that all of these things may have contributed to the decline, if there is one, but the reasons for it all might not be traceable back to the Condon Report or the lunar landing. And he suspects that if those things hadn't happened and if Blue Book were still going on, that ufology would still be more or less where they are today, basically, he argues. There had been a high point in 1966 and 1967. For example, the swamp gas cases and the national coverage and lots of news stories and, you know, Congress ponying up the money to fund the Condon committee's work. But there was a drop off and maybe that's just the way things are. It may just be in the cards that way. The fact may be that because of its nature, ufology is doomed to remain in this type of cycle because in order to get the kind of results we need for serious attention, we first need to have that very attention. Ufology as a field may not be alone in that boat, but we may be down in the bottom doing the bailing, down in the bottom where the water covers first. Blub, blub. Ufology, he says, is sort of fighting a rear guard action, or they're at that part of the cycle, the down cycle, and it might just be the natural way that things are. So what's the answer? It's not to throw in the towel. He doesn't want to throw in the towel, but it might be important to rethink how things go. That maybe the political establishment, as he calls it, or the public are not in his words, the whole ball game. Maybe there's a need to move in a different direction. If such hasn't already taken place without my knowledge, I call for moving in the direction of obtaining a small, spelled realistic, research grant, possibly from private enterprise. This grant would not go to some private UFO organization, but to scientific personnel interested in continued UFO study, this grant would perhaps be to do a preliminary study related to the following questions. One, what areas of further study seem most promising in terms of potential scientific discovery? Two, what range of funding would be needed to continue research in those areas? He's very clear that he isn't exactly sure how to go about doing this, but he's fairly certain that... Doing things the way things have always been done is no longer viable. From a research standpoint, at least some of private ufology might now, in a sense, be well advised to more or less toss conservatism to the wind and stop worrying about respectability. The ugly truth, perhaps, is that ufology today is not merely without respect from the world at large; it has become an unthing, an unsubject. So while a few jacket and tie-wearing front groups may still be very much in order, the rest of us, hypothetically, can dig in and really try to dig out the truth about saucers, whatever that may be. And when all is said and done, that is something of potential importance, whether saucers are page one in the big city dailies or schlock for the lesser weekly tabloids. The answer is not going to come from the establishment. Whether that's the military establishment, the political establishment, or the scientific establishment. Scientists have a role to play, but they're not going to be operating in a large, governmentally sanctioned operation like the Condon Committee anymore. And ufology has to forget this idea of appealing to the good and the great and the powerful. It's time to just sort of get your hands dirty. Normal, regular people smart people, scientists, get some money together and try to figure out the answer. Is it the best way to go about doing things? Maybe not. But looking at it from my perspective, I think it's at least as plausible from a 1970 perspective as getting another government study that would somehow come up with an answer that is more favorable to ufology. And looking at it from a 21st century perspective, yeah, I, I think the idea that the answers are not going to be given to us by the establishment, whatever answers there are, is a reasonable thing to assume. Something else interesting in this first issue of The Parayufologist is a little blurb that is titled, A Five-Lesson Course in Ufology. As time goes by and the directions of UFO and unusual phenomenon research become more complex, the advanced investigator might find himself increasingly unable to communicate to others easily the theoretical ramifications of the UFO problem. It is suggested that the following five-book course presented to an interested but information-lacking layman may provide the necessary bridge or some approximation of it. The books should be read in the order presented here. So what are the books? The first book, so the first in order, is the Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by former Blue Book head Edward J. Ruppelt. And Greenfield specifies that this should not be the revised edition of this work. I went and checked the one that's on my shelf, and it says it's the new enlarged edition. It doesn't say revised, but I still suspect that I have been subject to Air Force disinformation. Next, we have Anatomy of a Phenomenon by Jacques Vallée. Um, he doesn't specify there's a specific version that you should avoid for this one. Third is The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller. That's the book about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, which we're probably going to have to do an episode on sooner or later. Four is another valet book, Passport to Magonia, which is um, – interesting it's an interesting one uh, and 5 the last one is ufo's operation trojan horse by john keel which is probably my second favorite keel book uh i don't know that's that's hard to it's hard to determine um it's a good one so those are the five books in that order that greenfield thinks would be a good uh, a, a good basis for the quote interested but infla- information lacking layman and he says please report experimental results to the editor of the peri-ufologist. what's funny is when i first looked at this list of books i kept thinking of well why isn't such and such on there? Or why not that book? Or this seems like an oversight. And then I realized every book I was thinking would be a good addition or substitution on this list didn't exist when he wrote this list. So given that it's 1970 when this came out, this is a pretty thorough list. I would add Gray Barkers, they knew too much about flying saucers to this list, but that's because it's my favorite UFO book of all time. I can easily see why somebody wouldn't add it to a list like this. Actually, now that I'm here thinking about it, um, in addition to any questions or comments you have about this episode um, over the next week before our listener feedback segment on this one, tell me what would you swap out from this list? If anything, you have five books published before 1970 about ufology, which one would you add? And if you took one out, which one would that be? I think that might be interesting to get your take on that. All right, let's move on to issue number two, which as far as I can tell, came out probably late 1970, early 1971. The cover is missing from the scan. So we only have the clue that He's referencing in this first article, a newspaper article from October of 1970. It's a UPI uh, wire service article discussing an unexplained explosion, which occurred on October 6th at 930 in the evening. Fiery material was seen falling from the sky. Alan Greenfield wrote a couple of the officials that were mentioned in the article, local officials. He received a, a reply from one a month later which indicated that the explosion itself was still officially unexplained. Greenfield explains that there's nothing here that is necessarily unexplained, but he does say that within the static of a lot of perfectly conventional, though unusual sounding material, we may find an element that does tie in with the hypothetical general fabric of the unknown. So basically, There's lots of things out there in the news that are weird, and they might not all connect to something numinous or mysterious or ethereal or paranormal in any way. But taking a broad view of everything that happens in the news, you might be able to find connections. And then he asks the readers or sort of suggests to the readers a course of action to sort of investigate this idea. If you have nothing better to do, you might try an experiment something like this. Head for the largest newspaper stand in town, one that carries lots of out-of-town papers. If you live somewhere in a remote jungle, you might find it appropriate to take a rain check on this particular experiment. Buy up as many out-of-town papers as you are willing to carry home. Next, once you're home, read through these papers looking for odd items. Someone struck by lightning here. Someone vanishes without a trace there. See what you come up with. If you expect this to reveal some grand sinister pattern to you, you might be disappointed. On the other hand, don't look too hard for any pattern, or you may just find one that isn't there at all. On the third hand, and if you have one of those, you really have better things to do than sitting there reading newspapers. If you take a reserved but interested view, you may find that even on a random day, quite a bit shows up of unusual phenomena interest. I am absolutely not going to say anything that resembles the word synchronicity with regard to this idea. But I do like the notion of examining the news for things that aren't necessarily significant in and of themselves, but when linked to different things that you see might make up a pattern. And I really appreciate that he points out that the pattern might not be there. The harder you look for it, the more you're likely to find it, and the more likely you are to find something that you're looking for, the more likely it is to not really be anything at all, right? So I enjoy that take. There's a couple other things in issue number two that I thought were worth mentioning. Well, there's a lot of stuff worth mentioning, but there are are two others that I'm going to mention just because we're limited for time, so I'm limiting myself here. In the book review section, we've got uh, a review of Today's Witches by Susie Smith, published by Prentice Hall. I'm not familiar with this book, but reading the review about the the rise of witchcraft in the, uh, in the United States, it's really interesting to me because this is 1971 when this comes out. And I think that's right around the same time as the BBC TV documentary, The Power of the Witch, which was about witchcraft in modern Britain and sort of the history of witchcraft in modern Britain, which is an interesting uh, interesting film if you're interested in sort of the rural folk traditions that underlie a lot of folk horror from Britain in the 19, uh, 1970s, such as The Wicker Man, which is one of my favorite films of all time. And also, of course, the classic Doctor Who story, The Demons. And the other really fascinating thing here is a outline, an outline uh, titled Preliminary Notes Toward a History of the Private Unidentified Flying Object Field in the United States. And I could take any chunk of this outline and say, hey, here's a great episode. Uh, So let's, we're not going to go through it line by line, but it is completely thorough. This is this is the most thorough thing ever. This is the outline of a book that doesn't really exist to my knowledge. I don't think any history of ufology is as thorough as what this outline proposes. So, let's take a look at what's going on here because this is just phenomenal and I love almost everything about it. Unfortunately, the first outline point says the something of the 1940s and the scan is blurry and it looks like the typewriter was a little little blurry epiphenology epiphenomenology something like that of the 1940s i uh i probably will put throw a picture of that up on social media and see if i can get some feedback into what that might say starts off point number one kenneth arnold and the explosion of ufo sightings in 1947 but then it goes into the pre-UFOlogy structure of the 1940s with the Borderline Science Research Associates, the 40 Society, uh, the Shaver Mystery, um, the, and then into the 1950s with Frank Scully's book and Donald Kehoe's article in True Magazine, and then 1952 with the you know flying saucer thing over Washington. 52 was a big year one of the f- one of the first big waves after 1947, and then. Outline point number two, he goes into the ufology movement of the 1950s. And even if it did nothing else right, I would love this forever because the first bullet point under the 1950s is Albert K. Bender and the IFSB and the mysterious closing and Bender's subsequent activities and publications, then Georgette Adamski and, and his activities, and it sort of puts other contact accounts of the fifties sort of as a sub sub point under Adamski. And he, he uses, uh, Van Tassel and Bethram and Reinhold Schmidt as three examples of that. So I find that interesting because there are a lot of contactees to choose from in the 1950s. And seeing, uh, my, my favorites, uh, Bethram and Schmidt there is just outstanding. And then he goes into personalities and organizations of the 1950s. We've got Gray Barker. We've got Jim Mosley. We've got Max Miller, who I don't think we've covered on the show yet. Uh, Norbert uh, Garrity, which I know we haven't. Frank Edwards. Leonard Stringfeld. um, Donald Kehoe. Coral Lorenzen. Ray Palmer. And then NICAP. So – You've got personalities and groups of the 50s, and then the third big point, sighting reports during the 1950s. And a, a huge number, in, including the French cases in 1954. Yes, we're going to do an episode on those. And then photographic cases, including McMinnville, Oregon, Adamski's photos, um, photos or movies, rather, from Utah and Montana. We've got the Lubbock Lights. We've got the Reverend Gill sighting. Um, yes, it's on the list. Hey, I've got to keep the show going. So yes, there are topics that we still need to cover. Then big point number four, American ufology in the 1960s. And it's, it's interesting. It's, I don't think this is self-indulgent, but I really like, I really like history books that authors kind of find their way. Around to putting themselves in because the first points under American Ufology in the 1960s are the teen ufology movement and a new generation of ufologists. And something, I don't know, poignant maybe, is the list of uh, ufolog- ufological teens that he lists here. It's Timothy Green Beckley and um, others you may have heard of, Alan Greenfield, obviously, Jerome Clark, David Halperin. Um, Alan Greenfield, I think I mentioned his. He, he mentioned his own name twice. Those are the names that jump out at me because I'm familiar with their work, and I'm familiar with their work. And I, I realize that uh, of those who are still with us, these are not uh, these are not young people. These are not young men at all. But they were the teens in the 1960s, and they were that new generation. And um, they they did some phenomenal work. Um, David Halperin. In particular, uh, I enjoy his work. He's he's got had a new book out. It came out last year. I have not read it yet. I have it, but I have not read it. So then he goes into some cases from the nineteen sixties, the Michigan wave in nineteen ninety six, and things like that. The Condon Committee, um, the post nineteen sixty seven decline, and then you know another sort of list of new publications that were out. Sort of another new sub generation the congress of scientific ufologists things like that there's a section on nicap and a section on theoretical changes in the ufo field with uh, writers like uh, john keel and jacques Vallee. newer contact cases woody darenberger and the hills and then the hill case becomes its own point Um, the word abduction i don't think is mentioned anywhere in here because we aren't Sort of at that point yet, we get the scientific involvement with um, J. Allen Hynek and uh, Donald Menzel, who's not a pro-UFO person, but a science type interested in the UFO phenomenon. Um, The contactee movement during the 1960s, Adamski's work, the giant rock conventions, post-Adamski contactees, and ufology at the beginning of the 70s. Uh, The Congress of Scientific Ufologists continued interest, but mostly a decline. So I I think this outline is just fascinating. And there's a little bit of commentary after this where Greenfield says, um, where does it go from here? I don't know at this writing. I should think the subject is worthy of a book, but don't count on me to write it, which is um, a refreshingly honest thing. And if somebody wants to, tackle something this huge that would be outstanding i do love this outline a lot there are some problems with it i I think it's a little indulgent a little bit he includes the para ufologist on his list of new 70s publications and a sign of continued interest you know you're on issue number two at this point sir don't get ahead of yourself and you know some of the names that he lists is you know the new generation you know they're there's it's 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 a click it's a scene and he's sort of mentioning the people in the scene but um you know in the end big sweeping histories no matter how big and sweeping they are, do have to narrow things down a little bit. And if this book were to be written with everything fleshed out that's in this, uh, in this outline, it would be roughly ninety zillion pages. All right, let's take a little break, and when we come back, we will tackle numbers three and four of the para ufologist. <laughs> We'll be back in a week fielding your questions and comments about this episode, including your suggestions for that five-book UFO course. So be sure to get those to us in the comments under this episode, uh, on the website, on social media, or through email at gmail.com. Then, on the next regular episode, we are going to begin our epic look at the story of the Philadelphia Experiment, the Montauk Project, and related weirdness. And yes there were ufos involved even more than i initially suspected and we're going to kick this off with the story of morris k jessup or as gray barker's book termed it the strange case of morris k jessup if you want to think of it as a multi-part episode i won't stop you but I'm designing it more as a series of standalone episodes, more or less standalone episodes, kind of like what we did with Mothman uh, a couple of years ago, looking at different aspects in each episode. But uh, listening to them in order would probably be a good idea. So it's going to be two, maybe three. I don't know. Haven't uh, decided yet. You could do a whole podcast, like an entire series that runs for multiple years about the Montauk stuff. I don't recommend it. It is, um, I mean, I don't recommend doing a podcast. I kind of recommend the Montauk stuff. Um, it's weird as you'll see. If you'd like to support the show and what we're doing here, you can do so over at the Chizo media, Patreon at, uh, media.com. That's C H E E S O media.com. Um, or in the Patreon app or the Patreon website, search for saucer life, um, That'll get you there. Search for Chizo Media. That'll get you there. Um, click the link in the show notes. That'll get you there. Uh, every month, you'll get a bonus episode uh, of The Saucer Life and a bonus episode of our sister program, Great Lakes Lore. You'll get the episodes early. You'll get other stuff, uh, commentary, extended episodes um, little posts about research and things like that. But while I'm not entirely sure what March's bonus episode for the saucer life is going to entirely consist of, at least one segment will be devoted to the Lear test, if you remember that from the old coast-to-coast episode back in 2003. And I will be subjecting the saucer wife to the Lear test on the saucer saucer wife bonus episode. Oh, she'd love that. The saucer life bonus episode over on patreon so thank you so much to those who have joined us over there it's a lot of fun um if you if you want to the links in the show notes you can check out past episodes in your podcast app or over at saucerlife.com We're at Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, uh, Saucer Life Podcast on Facebook. Search for us, you'll find it. Um, If you want to send us something in the mail that's nice and safe and and legal, you can do so at Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And now let's get back to the para ufologist. There is some interesting, interesting stuff in issue three of The Parayufologist, and this might be some of my favorite material in any saucer publication I have ever read. At least this first thing is. It is a story. It's fiction, I think, called The Saucer Lecturer, and it's told in the first person by a saucer lecturer who is accompanied by his friends Raub and his friend Wilu, and his friend Raung, and they are at a lecture, and it is just hilarious. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it begins with the, the narrator, the speaker, looking at the audience, seeing about 50 or 60 people there. His friend Wilu was dressed as a hippie, his friend Rayong is wearing a scientific suit with a small, neatly trimmed fake beard. But the hippie thing is interesting. Um, the narrator has this to say. Of course, we wouldn't want our people to develop too much of a hippie image because that might shift the straights right back into the saucer movement, and we wanted anything but that. But Lu had a very small part tonight. All he had to do was stand up at the right moment and yell, FAKE! after Rayong made his pitch. So clearly, things aren't on the up and up with this saucer lecturer and his friends Rayong, Raub, Reen, and Wa. What's the name? Walub? Wilu. Wilu. Yeah, something is strange here. But it's time for the lecture to start. Checking my watch, I could see that it was exactly eight. I gave Reen the signal to begin, and he walked over to the speaker's table and began his bit with the PA. As usual, we had fixed it in such a way so that it would work badly all evening. One, he began. Testing. One, two, three. Test. Testing. As he went through this, I made a last-minute check of the slide projector. Perfect. Four slides were in upside down, and the bulb was all set to burn out right in the middle of the lecture. Everything was in order, I was sure, and Reen, having finished his messing with the mic, began the program. Green welcomes everybody to the Atlantic Coast Flying Object Convention. They're glad everybody's there, and it gives him great pleasure to introduce the special guest lecturer, our narrator, Fieldson H. Henry, an expert on the flying saucer subject as well as ESP and astrology. The audience begins to clap. The unimpressive sound of applause from the small crowd was absolute music to my ears. I walked slowly to the table, making sure to trip over the mic cable slightly as I pushed my glasses slightly off to the side to enhance the crackpot image I was to project and began. The speaker begins conservatively, talking about the Arnold incident, the Washington sightings of '52, the Gill case, Socorro, Michigan swamp gas, talks a little bit about the contactees, keeping it, quote, objective and impersonal. Then he begins the slideshow portion and he shows distress when the projector bulb blows out, they look around for one, but of course they didn't have one. So that's 15 minutes they're wasting trying to find a bulb for the projector. One night last year while doing this bit, some damned idiot in the audience actually had a bulb with him. We had to make do with the inverted slides and the fake looking photographs projected to salvage the slide part of the program. After that, it was time for intermission. Now, the break, you see, is designed to show us how well we are doing on a given evening. If we are doing quite well, about half the people in the audience will not be back. On a poor evening, only one or two leave. One time, we were lucky enough to find an unheated hall in the dead of winter, which also had the additional asset of no restrooms. Only about five persons stayed that time, all presumably with heavy coats and fantastic control of bodily functions. And this was back in 1967, when saucer lecturers, even bad ones, were really packing them in. It was some meeting. They only lose 10 to 15 during the break. Not much to, to rave about, he says. And everything sort of shifts to a Q&A format, which is good, because then you can interact with the audience directly. I picked a fat man in an oversized trench coat. He asked, where did the UFOs come from? I hedged, still playing it conservative. Then, after a few more such, I recognized Raung, He stood there, tall and impressive, and in that deep tone of voice of his, he asked, "'Isn't it true that you yourself claim contact with the aliens?' My face, as always, turned an embarrassed red. I went through my evasion act, then told the contact story, filled with contradictions even the tennis shoe crowd could notice. On cue, Wheeloo jumped up, yelled, "'Fake!' and stalked out of the hall. A couple of people followed him. The rest counted the dots on the ceiling, looked at their watches, etc., until the end of the lecture." Given the funny names and generally what's going on here, you might have deduced where all this is going, but the end of the story sort of ties the whole thing up, and it's it's just two pages, it's, it's fun, it's clever, and I like the ending. Back at the ship, flying on to our next lecture date, Riong asked for the thousandth time, Why? Why do they buy such a simple ruse? Perhaps, I said, because they need to believe it's a fake. If they didn't, well, remember the Orwell broadcast? Off we flew, looking for all the world like a flying saucer. Or was it just ball lightning? Another interesting piece in this third issue of The Peri-Ufologist is entitled The UFO Field in the United States, an Evaluation of the Current Situation. And here Greenfield sort of looks at what's going on with ufology and sort of tests the question of, whether in a post-Blue Book, post-Condon Report world, anybody cares. And he says, yeah, people do care. He quotes a letter that was written to him by Stanton T. Friedman saying that, you know, you know, his lectures are overflowing and the audiences are enthusiastic. People are interested in the topic, even if institutions aren't interested in the topic. Ufology is still around, but where should it go in the future? I wasn't involved in the ufology of the 50s, but I did have the fortune, good or bad, of riding with the ufology of the 1960s on the road up and down the peak of 66-67 and down through the conclusions of the Condon Committee and the closing of Project Blue Book. It is still quite possible that the efforts of ufologists during that decade will ultimately yield a positive harvest, but any new ufological wave might well give thought to avoiding the mistakes of the past. For the ufology of the 60s, whatever else one can say of it, did not succeed in bringing about a high priority for scientific investigation of the UFO subject, nor does it seem to have been able to keep public attention at a sustained high level, nor did it, in any clear way, seem to solve the UFO mystery itself. So, what should it do in the future? He has one, two, three, four, five points. Here And the first point is that in the future, ufology needs to change the status of ufology from a hobby into a profession, from a part-time thing into a full-time thing. Um, The the fact remains, he says, ufology has, from the early days, been a non-professional field. What has it accomplished? He says it doesn't mean he's calling on non-professionals to drop out of ufology – He says a non-professional ufology is better than no ufology at all. Amateurs can play an important role, but he says it needs to be done by a professional class, a new professional class within the UFO field. I don't think this has happened Um, since then. I don't think it will happen. I'm not sure where the money would come from to be a professional ufologist. I'm not sure what the business plan would be for that because the money to be made in ufology, I would think, would be in presenting material, presenting findings, presenting research. And I don't know if that would generate enough revenue to fund the kind of rigorous professional level scientific or other ificological, ificological there's a word, ifecological work that needs to be done. Two, narrow theoretical prejudice in any direction should be avoided by persons working in the UFO field. A good case could be developed for a number of explanations for the UFO problem, but no one explanation has yet been proven in such a way as to move it from the status of theory to the status of objective fact. Theoretical offerings which might, at first look, seem to be totally absurd could well, upon closer investigation, prove to be quite interesting. Ufologists should avoid falling into either unduly accepting or rejecting any theory or claim. I mean, yeah, I don't want to say obviously, but yeah, kind of obviously we don't know what this is and we don't even know what theories might be effective Um, along these same lines. I saw somebody on Twitter the other day who styles themselves a professional investigator of the paranormal, you know, proclaim that people need to stop acting like they have the answers because nobody has the answers as, as though this was some sort of profound realization or pronouncement that they had when, you know, smart people have been saying that for going on 50 years, right? Uh, the third point efforts should continue. He says to be made in the direction of gathering and making available raw UFO data, even where such data tends to repeat itself. He says, ad nauseum collecting data and doing what with it that's always sort of the the step that doesn't really get addressed a lot of times i assume the new professional class of ufologists would be analyzing this data but we've been collecting data for a long time i'm not sure the collection of data is is the answer and data is important but what you deal with data is much more important four It might help the ufology field if present ufologists were to launch a meaningful effort to capture and retain a substantial youth element for the ufology sphere. If such an effort is launched, experienced ufologists should attempt to provide newcomers with a knowledge of the ufological past in such a manner as to avoid a repeat of the same pitfalls that have appeared in the earlier eras. you got to get the kids hooked man that's the only way this works and yes there needs to be new voices on a regular basis coming into uh, coming into this field but uh, my favorite part of that point is that you need to teach them what has come before so they don't just spin their wheels and make the same mistakes and sort of find things that people have already found and you know say the same things about them it it would be like UFO Twitter, if you didn't teach people what had come before, and nobody wants that. 5. Ufologists should be on the lookout for and should resist any inclination on the part of the field to become internalized and out of tune with general reality. Public interest in the subject should continue to be sought after in an active way, and segments of the field should work in this direction. It should be kept in mind that the approaches used toward the public and press in the recent past may now be overworked new approaches should be developed and put into use now there is a fourth issue of the para but it's um, i think it's even shorter than the other ones it's only about 15 pages and the, the biggest article in it is about ufo myth and it's it's unwieldy i i tried to to sort of form it into a thing and and and, and sort of summarize it and, and have some excerpts from it, but it's unwieldy and um con- complex, not unwieldy in a, this is poorly written way, but in a, I can't do this justice sort of way. So I will have a direct link to the Archives for the Unexplained copy of this fourth issue of The Peri-Ufologist in the show notes. And you can take a look at the article called The Myth of Ufology Yourself, because I tried, and I did say four issues at the beginning of the episode. That's because I did that before I got down to this last episode or this last issue, and I, I can't I can't do it justice. So we will end it there as far as looking at these issues in depth. But I do want to say a couple things. First, I think it's clear that uh, the things that Greenfield was talking about in these issues of the peri-ufologist and the way he talked about ufology and – his emphasis on studying the history of ufology to avoid the pitfalls of the past and to have a fuller understanding of the range of opinions and theories being offered is something that um, not a lot of people were doing in the early 1970s. People were still very much in their nuts and bolts silos or their John Keel silo or their Jacques Vallée silo. Um, they still are. They still really are. And a lot of what Greenfield is talking about here. People have said in the last five or ten years and been hailed as visionaries or really insightful, and they are. I mean, these are, these are seeing the interconnectedness between different aspects of the paranormal and esoteric things and a broader sort of conception of the history of ufology being important. These are all very good things, but they're not necessarily new things, and I think it's important to recognize what people like Greenfield were doing back in the early 1970s. And the second thing I want to say is that Greenfield wrote all of these things with such a light touch and with such humor. He's really an excellent writer, which isn't something you see a lot or consistently among UFO types. He's entertaining. His story about the saucer people who were doing bad lectures in order to throw humans off the scent of UFOs, it was it was sort of gray barker level Sly humor, and I really, really enjoyed that. And I have a feeling I'm going to be reading a lot more old Alan Greenfield newsletters in the months to come. Next time, Morris K. Jessup, his books, and the weird mail he received. Thank you for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual channels, and we'll address it on our feedback episode next week. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizomedia LLC. Chizomedia, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.